Welcome to Whiskey and Wonder. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome one, welcome all to Whiskey and Wonder. Podcast where we get together every week and we review whiskey and teach the other something that has made us wonder. Yes, and as you can tell, Megan is back today. I am. I missed you guys. Woo! So that means we get to pick up on our topic. Yep. So, but before we get too far into that, let's jump into the announcements real quick. We're going to blaze through them today as Navia is in my lap trying to get pets. Um, firstly, go check out the Patreon. It is whiskey and one, uh, it is patreon.com slash whiskey and wonder. And that's whiskey with an E. Um, we have three different tiers over there. You can join, uh, anywhere from two to $10 a month. You can get anywhere. Um, you can get anything from the ability to vote on our infinity bottles to early access to episodes and some behind the scenes stuff, as well as like merch coupons and discount codes and stuff. Uh, so go check that out on Patreon. Um, voting for the infinity bottles. So, uh, I mentioned that if you don't know what an infinity bottle is, it's basically our own blend of whiskeys. So we let you guys choose uh, what we put in our infinity bottles. If you know, if you want to make us suffer, you, Vote in the things we didn't like. If you love us, you vote in the things we liked and hope that they all blend together well. <laughs> um, <laughs> as Navia is trying to drink the water out of my glass <laughs> that's on the table, God. Uh, I'm, I'm having to Mercy. fight her. Yeah. Um, check out our store. Uh, it's with... <laughs> God damn this dog. <laughs> I love her to death, but... <laughs> that is not for you, Nay. <laughs> you... you she... She's trying very hard to get into my water. Um, so <laughs> I guess she's thirsty. Um, check out the store, whiskeyandwonder.com slash store. We've got T-shirts for both uh, men's style and women's style. We also have stickers and our whiskey glasses with our, our logos etched. And the only other announcement I really have is I'm going to let Megan handle because uh, it relates a little more to her. That would be the, the five thousand um, torture Megan thing. Uh, we do have five thousand listens. Yeah, torture Megan. Um, we do have a dress picked out. It is not ordered yet, but it is. Uh, it is decided upon, and um, it'll be coming soon. Yep, here within the next couple of weeks. So we'll yep. we'll be we'll have that footage of Megan in her disgustingly pink dress. Uh, I'm going to try to find a little child's tiara that's plastic. <laughs> See if I can order that off Amazon or something. Oh, no. And do you have shoes? I will have shoes by the time we go. All right. So, and we're going to force her to dress up in a completely un Megan style and, uh, you know, embarrass her. We'll record it and it'll go up on our social media stuff. So, y'all look forward to that. Um, The last thing we want to say before we dive too much. Uh, before we dive into today's episode is just uh, thank you to everybody that supports us. Oh man, Megan, take over. I'm about to sneeze. Oh no. Uh, thank you to everyone who supports us. Um, everyone who likes and reviews, follows, rates, does all that amazing things. Um, you are why this um, can happen. And it's thanks to you guys. We're sitting in the high eighties of episodes. So thank you so much. 
Um, yes, yes, we are. This is episode 87, plus or minus a few that haven't been counted as actual episodes that are specials, specials or like last week's From the Vault episode. Um, but yes, thank you to everybody that does donate and supports us through whether that's through Patreon or donations or uh, just liking, subscribing, and telling your friends. We we really appreciate it. For sure. Um, and the last thing I want to do is check the show notes for all our social media stuff, the main one being uh, at Whiskey Podcast. Megan and, and my personal ones pop up on the screen here on YouTube. If you're interested in those and your audio, you can find that down below. And uh, email us at contact at com if you have something to say feedback, if you liked something, if you didn't like something, just let us know. Um, everything else, the YouTube link, uh, it's just search Whiskey and Wonder on YouTube. Go there, subscribe, hit the bell, you know, all this stuff on YouTube. Uh, I'll flash the socials up on the screen as well here. And yeah, everything else will be down in the show notes that you can find. So with that, we're going to move it on. Open segment. All right. It's been so long. It feels like it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get the bad news out of the way. Um, Houston's grandmother on his father's side passed away this week. Oh, no. So we've been um, dealing with that, I guess. Uh, I don't know how else to say it, but uh, that's been rough. Um, and that's kind of been, this week has been kind of like just a blur of sadness. Well, uh, my condolences to you and Houston and, and his whole family. Um, especially with my grandmother passing recently, I can relate, I can understand. So I hope everything is, uh, everybody's doing okay with it and handling it. All right. Thank you. Um, Good news, exciting news. Uh, we got a kitten. <laughs> um, or well, we originally weren't going to get a kitten. I was going to find it a home, and then turns out we are the home for the kitten. Um, someone found this little itty itty bitty baby kitten, like still needed milk, um, in a trash can. And um, they were like, "We don't know what to do with it," and so I was like, "Well, I'll take it, and I'll." get it healthy and um, find it a home and uh, we've gotten her healthy and found her a home found her home so <laughs> uh, that's uh, it's actually really funny because Shelby has been fostering the most precious kitten and I <laughs> are you gonna foster fail no I am I have been no Shelby she were, took it back today to where where it goes um, I had been begging her for two weeks that she needed to keep that cat because she's mentioned wanting a cat many Aww. times. And I was like, this is the perfect cat. I am on board with this. And she was like, no, you get it. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not having a litter box at my house. <laughs> <laughs> and so you wanted the cat without the responsibility of the cat. Yep, pretty much. I wanted to be able to go to her house and hang out with the cat. But <laughs> that didn't happen. So uh, he's a sweet, sweet fella. Aww. But, we named him uh, uh, Rambo. Rambo? Yeah, that wasn't his real name, but we named him Rambo because he was rambunctious as hell. That's adorable. So, but uh, now I'm now I'm thinking about paying $150 to go adopt Rambo. Oh. And I don't want to. 
They have automatic cat litter boxes that are like really amazing. Yeah, I ain't wanting to pay for that. Oh, well. But Bo mm-hmm. can't help, help himself around the cat. <laughs> I mean, he like whines when the cat goes under something he can't get to he or he can't find him. the cat. Like he stands over the cat. Like the cat, you know, the kitten was this tall and he'd be like standing there just directly over him. That could be very bad. <laughs> oh, no. He, like, they were like, playing earlier today, yeah, and Bo okay. was, like, I don't want to say, like, biting him, but he was, like, open mouth playing with him. Okay. And he like, he being, plays with Navia. Yeah, he and... was being very gentle. Oh. Yeah. And okay. Good boy. He, there, were, there were a couple of moments I had to get onto him. Like, the cat yesterday was uh, up against the wall, laying on a dog bed up against the wall, and Bo had kind of, like, pinned it there, and it was upside down. <laughs> belly to the sky and Bo like took his nose and like you know how he like nudges things with his nose and he nudged the cat three or four times and just like shoved it into the wall every time I was like dude calm your ass (laughs) you know so um but yeah so Rambo he's gonna find a great home it's not gonna be with us but that was like the one opportunity I was going to be on board with getting a cat. Oh, we'll see if you foster any others and decide. That cat was perfect. Uh, uh, my mom my mom has had so many kittens and cats, and that was the most well-behaved. It behaved like a dog. No. If you, if you scolded it, it, it would, like, it knew it was in trouble. <laughs> so, I don't know. Anyway. Um, we have not named our kitten yet. Uh, we have, like, a huge list of, like... Lucille. <laughs> I've um, met this cat. I call it Lucille. Lucille, actually, Lucienne is uh, on our list. Okay, I was close. You're very close, Lucy. Um, but yep. anyway, we have a huge list, and as soon as we actually decide on a name, uh, you guys will be the uh, first to know. Well, we're waiting with bated breath. Right now, we just call her Trash Kitty, or just yeehaw, <laughs> 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 yeehaw. Uh, let's see. All right. Well, uh, my week was pretty, uh, bland for the most part. It was very, uh, very ordinary for me. I, <laughs> I got very, very angry on Monday. Uh oh. Um, because I spent most of the weekend with Shelby hanging out and, you know, doing all the things and had, so I think I've mentioned on here recently, I bought a new guitar and it usually hangs behind me here on the wall. Oh, they have no. got, they have got, uh, one of my, my old faithful acoustics, my actually one of my favorite guitars back there. Anyway. Um, so I, it was to any guitar people out there, you'll get this to anybody that's not bear with me. It's a it's a Mexico made Fender Stratocaster, and so those are never those are the cheaper version. The American maids cost a grand more easily for just some minor upgrades. So I bought the parts to upgrade it myself. A lot of them are not hard to do. Um, so I I basically bought a nut, which for anybody that uh, doesn't know guitars, it's the part where the strings. Like if if you turn around, you see the white part at the very top where the strings start to go into the headstock. Mm-hmm. That's the nut. It's usually made out of bone, tusk, or plastic. 
plastic ones are cheaper and they don't sound as good. They don't sustain as long, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, one thing that the, the Mexican fenders come with is a plastic nut. So I took it off and I got a bone nut and I have slowly been working to set this guitar up and sand that nut down. It's a very frustratingly slow process mm. because you have to sand a little bit, put it back in, put the strings on, tune it up, measure. Oh shit. It's still too high. Take undo all the strings, take it back out, sand mm. it some more. And so it, it's just an excruciatingly slow process. And it's one of those that if you take too much, you can't put it back. So you got to go really slow. So I did that. I was planning to do that Monday. Yep. And I ha- I have a ton of sandpaper. I know I do. And a couple, and uh, I'll go ahead and give, uh, say that Shel- I apologize to Shelby much later, later on, but I know for a fact that Shelby had helped me clean my house and move things. And I had, I would sometimes use the sandpaper to sharpen knives and I had it sitting with my knife sharpening stuff on the table Uh-oh. where I had just sharpened it the day previously. I know where this is going. And I had basically, I remember her putting some of the knife things in a specific spot. And I thought she had put the sandpaper there with it. And she had not. Mm. I guess mm. I had moved it at some point. Hmm. Anyway, I tore my house apart for an hour and a half trying to find this that I this sandpaper that I knew I had couldn't find it I was so pissed I swore I was swearing up and down I was like I know you had it last you know that's the last place I remember it being mm-hmm. at least you having it and I was like you know what fuck it I'm just going to Walmart I'll buy another pack of sandpaper spend more money on it it's ridiculous and I, I distinctly said to myself as I was leaving now you fucking watch I'll come back to this house and, and find I'll it. find it yep Ten seconds <laughs> after I get back to my house, I open one of my cabinets in the garage, one that's on the ground, and I look at the lowest point and in the way very back, the only place I couldn't see, and I, I, will, I will admit I did not bend over fully because my back has been killing me this week. I've got a pulled muscle in my back. Um, so I didn't bend over fully, and there it was, way in the back, my entire selection of sandpaper. Of course, after I had just bought some more. So <laughs> I guess I just wasted the time and gas to get there. And I, so I'm still working on sanding that nut down. I haven't had much time to do that uh, this week. Um, this, uh, this weekend has been a very interesting weekend. I've officially become an old man. You weren't one already? Uh, physically. Uh-oh. Mentally, I was an old man. I have officially, physically become an old man. I never, ever nap. Ever. You napped? Not just once. Twice. What I in took, the world? I took an hour and a half nap yesterday and today. What in the world? I have no idea what is going on with me. Wow, I don't even know what to say to that. I, you don't, that's weird. Yeah, I, I don't nap. I don't, uh, you know, I just, I have officially gotten old. That's what old men do. They take naps and they waste their time doing that. I guess. No offense to any old men that nap. <laughs> um, 
but I'm I'm right there with you now. So, uh, yeah, okay. I guess those were the big highlights of my week. I'm uh, also I I'm lucky enough to have gotten two mental health days off at work over this nice. next fiscal year, and I am choosing to take one of those tomorrow to play a round of golf in the morning. Oh, nice! This will be the first time I've played an actual round of golf in several years. Um, uh, some buddies of mine and I went and played last Friday. We went and played night golf at a glow golf is what it was at a local par three. And, and it, it was a golf course. Yeah. It's a par three golf course. And they did a, that, yeah. I didn't know they would do like a glow. Every so often they will. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, it's like actual golf. It's not putt-putt or anything. Yeah, no, that's why I, yeah. I'm making sure, like, I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah, you had to charge the little glowing golf balls with the with a flashlight. Oh, that's so cool. And then so they would cool. glow in the dark, and you'd hit your shot and go find it. That's so cool. <laughs> um, that's amazing. But that sparked a renaissance in me for golf. So I am going, I've been to the driving range several times this week. Nice. Um, and I'm going to go play with them in the morning. So that'll nice. be fun. That's awesome. But that was uh, the, the the main highlights of my uh, of my week. Did you have any other? Uh, no, I pretty much. That's the most the interesting things that have happened have been real high high and a real low low. <laughs> so. I, I understand. Um, well, I guess on that note, guys, we'll go ahead and move it on. Um, yeah. Opening the bottle. All right, guys. Today we are doing a very unique, very rare um, bourbon. Uh, so I mentioned last week, real quick, I'm going to butt in. I mentioned on uh, my little announcements before our, our vault episode that I had found some uh, whiskeys that are only released quarterly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so today we're going to do one of those. Nice. So this is Booker's Bourbon, and Booker's Bourbon is a rare barrel-strength bourbon bottled uncut and unfiltered, but you obviously know a good bit about bourbon because you don't end up here by mistake. We don't advertise, we don't do social media, we just do bourbon. We focus on the sweet spot, the center of the rack house where the temperature and humidity stars align to create the deepest and most intense flavors. Once it's aged to perfection, which always varies, the liquid is bottled, uncut, and unfiltered. We don't add, we don't water down, and we don't apologize for it. For some people, it may be too much, but for true bourbon fans, it's probably the best ever. So, this runs... 124.8 proof, this particular batch. And this is the second release of Booker's Bourbon 2022 collection called the Lumberyard Batch. Uh, the website says that this batch is named in honor of my dad, Booker Knows Pre-Distillery Years. While his journey to becoming a distiller wasn't exactly a straight path, it led him to his true passion. After a short stint at the University of Kentucky, Booker hitchhiked across America in hopes of joining the Air Force. After being accepted to the Air Force, the local police called his mom to verify his information to be cleared. 
When Booker's mom found out where he was, she convinced him to come home and work at the local lumber yard with Uncle Jeremiah Beam, also known as Uncle Jer. Booker was over six feet tall and very strong at an early age. He never backed away from physical labor of any kind, which made him a natural fit for the job. Booker gave 110% during his time at the lumberyard, which eventually landed him his first role working at the distillery, and from then on, the rest was history. Since that first day, Booker held just about every job at the distillery and worked his way up to master distiller. Booker's esteemed distilling career wasn't given to him. He earned it. He, his experience at the lumberyard is shaped for solid work ethic and curiosity that he is known for. I'm excited to share the lumberyard batch with you and hope you will be able to gather with family and friends to enjoy it. Fred No Beam fam- Family, seventh generation master distiller. So Booker, uh, and I'm not sure if it's No or Noe. No. It's it's N O E or K N O E. I don't remember. It's N O E. N O E. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's No or Noe, um, but he was the grandson of Jim Beam. Yeah. So, um, this is, like I said, only released quarterly, and I just for MSRP, just roughly. You know, our states uh, run. You know, our liquor stores in the state are run by the state, so they're you know about typically five to ten dollars above MSRP. I think I paid eighty or ninety bucks for this. Oof. So we'll see if it's worth that. Um, did you have more? No, that is uh, everything, unless you have anything you want to add. Uh, no, I just wanted to add, like I said, this is 124.8 proof. It is aged. It tells you on the bottle here, it is aged seven years, one month, and seven days. Um, and uh, the mash bill is 77% corn, 13% rye, and 10% barley. So I would expect... A decent amount of spice in there with 13% rye. Maybe not overwhelming. Um, and 77% por- corn. Almost said porn. Um, <laughs> 77% corn. And, you know, it's... it's You know, I, I, I have taken a whiff of it, but I'm struggling to come up with anything. Well, I got scared with my first sip. Or not sip. Not sip. Not sip. My first sniff, sniff, um, and because I distinctly smelled peanut butter, and we have not had great luck with peanut butter whiskeys. Matter of fact, we've only done one, and it was Disgusting. easily the second worst whiskey we've ever done on here. Facts, and I, we both know exactly what the first one is. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> um, oh, that was oh god, that was rough. Yep. Um. So I, I like smelled it and then I like pulled it away like, oh my God, no, peanut butter. Um, but it I'm having a hard time finding that again. Um, it is very alcoholy. There's a lot of burn, a lot of spice, menthol. Um, there's the typical bourbon, vanilla, and caramel that you get. Um Yeah, I I definitely get the menthol um and a vanilla, but I also get there's a much more um uh, it's a more subtle uh, f- smell, um, and it's it's more earthy. Is it peanuts? Yeah, it's some kind of nut. 
smell and, and that that's always really hard for me because i don't really think nuts smell you know it's like peanut butter obviously has a distinct smell but you don't think nuts smell like you don't know the smell of pistachio i can't i can't think you of could it. or I almond no. no interesting i couldn't i couldn't tell you what those smell like like if i had a bowl of them i can't say i could if you like blindfolded and me like tell which nut yeah, it is yeah i don't think i could do that Wow. I could, now, if you had pistachio butter, peanut butter, and almond butter, yeah, sure. But just the nuts, no. Just the nuts, no. Okay. I don't think I could do that. All right. Well, nifty. Um, I have two websites pulled up here um, with tasting, or ta- well, tasting notes. Um, one is Booker's, and another is another uh, reviewer, um, because sometimes uh, distilleries don't exactly go into detail. And Booker's does not. Oh, I got the nuts that time. I got peanut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely got peanut. I had to almost shove my nose in there, but That's, I got it. I shoved my nose in there all the way. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, Shove it in there deep. <laughs> so Booker's website says the aroma is robust vanilla and caramel notes. Slightly smoky. So like as vague as they possibly could be. Now, this reviewer says the nose is... Roasting slightly burnt, burnt peanuts. Gross. This smells like the Booker's of old. Rounded, powerful, flavor-driven, proof, complex, nuttiness. Toasted graham crackers, cinnamon, whipped honey, and marsala wine. So, uh, yeah, this person is very much, like, way into uh, detail um, compared to regular old Booker's. Wow. Uh-oh. I don't know if that's a good wow or bad, that bad wow. I have taken two sips of this. And let me tell you, I don't think I've gotten the um, the notes on the front end either time. I've been so overwhelmed with the finish and how it goes. It gets smoky. Then it gets fruity. And then it's over it. The first time it wasn't as overwhelming. I took a very small sip, but the second one was a larger sip and it was overwhelmingly cinnamony, like a piece of big, big red. Yeah. Um, I only took one sip and it one sip only took one sip so far. And it definitely that like finish, like kicked me in my throat. Um, and so all I can tell you that I tasted was cinnamon. Like that's all I'm getting. And my mouth still st- still tastes like cinnamon so i'm gonna have to try it a bit more yeah i definitely got uh 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 oh what is that flavor i can't think of it in the like right at the i guess it would be the middle it wasn't sweet but it wasn't it was like just outside of being sweet is that if that makes sense Kind of, oh, let me see if I can get it again. Um, not quite sweet, but not, not sweet. I don't know. Uh, like fruity, not sugary, but fruity. No, it, no. I've, I've said this on here before and I, I hate making this comparison, but it's literally the only thing I know that tastes like that. The buttered popcorn jelly bean. Oh, uh, <laughs> gross. <laughs> I get that that flavor in the middle. 
You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yep. I don't know. I don't know what makes that flavor, but it is right there for me. Yeah, it and is. And that was one of my favorite jelly beans. That's so weird because that jelly bean is so gross. Oh, you shut your mouth. Mm. Licorice is gross. Licorice is the grossest thing on the planet. Yes. I hate licorice. All right. At least, at least we can agree on that. Yeah. One of the. Uh, yeah. No. No licorice for me. Thank you. Uh That that's very interesting. I don't know what flavor that is. Um, but yeah, so I didn't, I didn't get a ton on the the front end. Have you gotten the front end yet? I'm yes. kind of having to work my way backwards on this one. So the front end, um, I've taken a few more sips and I feel like the front end, it lasts for like a split second. Um, and I think that's where like the oak is. Um, that's the initial wood for me is like literally there for like a moment uh, yeah. and then gone. I can, um, I, I agree with that. I also, uh. I also get some fruit in there. Yeah. Some, some like raisin flavor. Yeah. That's actually, yeah. raisin is a really good yeah. descriptor. I couldn't think of a, a taste for it um, or a name for it. So I, I want to point one thing out here while Megan is, excuse me, while Megan is sipping. And you can find this all online. I'm hoping the camera's actually moving, not freezing up like it is for me. Um, but if you look at, if you look on YouTube at Megan, you see directly above her head, there is a wooden box on top of the whiskey cabinet right under her hand. That is actually what this came in. Uh, and I'm sure you can find pictures of that online. But I thought that was pretty neat. Um, pretty cool little packaging. So thought I, I just wanted to point that out real quick. Um, after your buttered popcorn jelly bean, I am getting... Nuts for a second, like peanuts. Um, and then I'm hit with cinnamon, and it's just cinnamon the rest of the way. I will say I did not enjoy putting it under my tongue. Um, it I can understand that I'm burned not. so bad. I like for a split second was like, This is how I go, this is it. I'm just gonna die, die like this. Yep, like this is it, it's over. <laughs> so, uh yeah. Navy is back to going after my water again. I don't I, I don't know why. She has had plenty of water today, but yeah. she's just into the water. No, that's fine, Nay. Not for you. Um, um oh, go ahead. So Booker's says the taste is deep and complex. Flavors of vanilla, nuts, and oak. The finish is long and full. Perfect for easygoing sipping. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, I just put it under my tongue, and I want to cry. Yep. <laughs> Mainly from the spiciness. Yep. <laughs> it hurt. Yeah. It it definitely hurt. But again, it is, what was it, 124 point something? Enough that I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. So, uh, but it is, uh, you know, this is barrel proof. This is, this is, this is the high, the high stuff, the good stuff. As they say, so we'll uh, we'll keep sipping yeah. on this, and we'll. Nope, I'm gonna real quick oh, go sorry. over the more in depth palette. Okay, from this reviewer, um, they say peanuts, dark raisins, that the proof is not overpowering at all. I don't know if I agree with that. 
wet tobacco, gross, vanilla bean creme brulee. Mouthfeel is silky and chewy without being heavy. Pepper and oak on the first half and roasted peanuts as the proof dies down. Um, yeah, I would agree with most of that. It looks like... Uh, I'm not getting any tobacco. Yeah, I don't get tobacco. That that was the one. I don't even know what wet tobacco tastes like. So, um, Maybe that's that <laughs> popcorn... <laughs> You know, popcorn jelly bean flavor. Um, so <clears throat> Booker's uh the lumberyard batch is available nationwide beginning in July in limited quantities with a retail price of ninety dollars. So for a fit uh yeah, for a seven hundred and fifty mil bottle. So that's what I paid. I paid ninety bucks for it. Uh I do wanna make one note that uh the store I found this at I also found another quarterly limited release, and I also found two other very hard to find in this area whiskeys. And I could have easily spent four hundred dollars that day. Woof! Uh, but I had to limit it to two. So <laughs> woof. But all right. Well, uh, unless Megan has anything else, we will. No, I'm ready. All right. It's time for the Wonder Segment. All right, friends. Most of you should know what you're getting into this week as we continue to dive into the true crime story of the West Memphis Three. I highly recommend you listen to the first part, episode 86, where I introduce you to the crime and the beginning of the investigation. You'll probably be confused if you listen to this while neglecting the last one. Before we continue, I want to remind everyone that this case is heavy. We cover the brutal murders of three eight-year-old children, Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch. Last week, we ended with the police investigation at a standstill. There was a refusal to look deeply into the people with personal connections to the boys, and they'd failed to find anything tying strangers to their deaths. But there was one more theory that they had suggested, and they decided to throw all their remaining efforts into proving. The boys had been executed in some sort of cult ritual. Despite there being zero evidence of such a sacrifice, all manpower went into finding the Satanists responsible. Jerry Driver, a retired airline pilot turned juvenile officer and self-proclaimed expert of the occult, became a lead contributor to the case, despite not having despite not being a police officer and having no formal training in occultism. Driver's main focus was a boy named Damien Eccles, who had come to his attention a year before the murders when first a woman called the police department to report that Damien had been threatening her daughter. Damien was 17 and a high school dropout who lived in Marion's Lakeshore Estates trailer park. Winner. <laughs> He was 5 feet 11 inches, 160 pounds, and had brown eyes and dark hair. The woman's daughter was 15-year-old Deanna Jame Holcomb, who had been dating Damien. They'd broken up earlier in the week, and Eccles was, quote, harassing her and one of her male friends. 
The mother claimed that Damien said he'd kill the boy and dump the body on their front lawn before taking care of Deanna. She told the responding officers that she was afraid for her daughter's life. Quote, Lakeshore was one of the poorest neighborhoods in a country that ranked among the nation's poorest 10%. While many homes there were neatly kept with gardens and cheerful wind chimes, others slumped in neglect and dreary dilapidation. Most residents of Lakeshore states subsisted on some form of state and federal assistance, and the Eccles family was no exception. Damien lived with his sister, mother, grandmother, and stepfather in a small two-bedroom trailer. Tensions in the household were simmering. The investigating officer drove to the trailer, and when the dark-haired teenager answered the door, the officer warned him to stay away from Deanna and her family. End quote. Social workers visited the Eccles household and feared that Damien and his sister Michelle severely needed help. In 1992, the caseworker said that their family was verging on a breaking point. The breakup between Damien and Deanna did not last long. Within the month, they were back together, and her mother called the police again. This time, when they responded, Damien and Deanna just so happened to be walking into the house shortly after their officer arrived. Deanna's mother screamed at Damien to stay away, even as he tried to say he had just been walking her home. Later on, Driver would say that he heard from Deanna's mom that Damien was trying to get her into black magic. The story of forbidden love might have ended there, but during a thunderstorm six nights later, Deanna's mother called the police again, this time to report that Deanna had run away from home presumably with Damien. Officers headed for Lakeshore Estates, where they found the teenagers both partially nude from the waist down in an uninhabited mobile home. Damien's friend, Jason Baldwin, was with them. Damien and Deanna acknowledged that they had planned to run away, but since neither Damien nor Deanna owned a car, or even drove one, for that matter, they had sought refuge in the trailer to wait out the storm. Nothing was reported stolen, but police charged the pair nonetheless with burglary and sexual misconduct. Damien and Deanna were taken to the county jail, and Driver was notified. Someone from the juvenile office went to the Eccles' trailer and asked to search Damien's room. Pam Eccles granted her permission, and the juvenile officer walked out with notebooks containing Damien's writings and drawings. Pam said she was told that they would be returned, but they never were. One of the confiscated notebooks included the Dean, Co- Dean Kuntz poem I read last week, Dark Fall. Two weeks ago. Yep, two weeks ago. You're right. Sorry, I was going to let the first one slide. <laughs> oh, did I already f-, f up once? Yeah. Sorry, you can tell when I did this research. <clears throat> <laughs> um, drivers kept them because he felt they were evidence that Eccles was into the occult. The deputy prosecutor filed charges against Eccles for the night in the trailer, and while Deanna was released to her parents, he had to remain in a juvenile detention center. According to staff, Damien followed all the rules and treated everyone with the utmost respect. Despite that, a nasty rumor started that he had been trying to get Deanna pregnant so that they could sacrifice the child in a satanic ritual. This was absolutely baseless, but Driver grabbed on and immediately took Damien to a psychiatrist in Little Rock, Arkansas. When it comes down to it, 
and I'm probably going to sound a bit bitter here, Damien Eccles was judged purely by his looks and taste. He was a typical goth kid. He wore lots of black and decided to practice Wiccan as his religion. But Driver saw it differently. Quote, Damien had told Driver that he was a witch. Well, now the quote starts. Uh, I think his claim was that he was a Wiccan, Driver later said, and he worshipped goddesses. The boy also dressed most, mostly in black. To Driver, he looked like one of the slasher movie type guys. Boots, coat, long, stringy black hair, though he cut it short sometimes. As Driver saw it, Damien was part of an alarming trend in the county. One that was drawing not just Damien Eccles, but many teenagers towards Satan. Driver concluded that Damien was the leader or a central figure in a group devoted to what Driver termed a cult-related activity. Driver and Jones found pentagrams and other cult-related graffiti under railroad bridges on on fornifications alongside the interstates and in an abandoned cotton gin east of Marion that kids had nicknamed Stonehenge. Driver knew that some of the goings-on could be chalked up to adolescent mischief. He recognized that a lot of this devil worship stuff was an excuse to drink and have sex, and that some of the kids who were involved were dabbling, doing it as a lark. But others, like Damien, appeared to Driver to have gone beyond mere dabbling. Driver's concerns were not uncommon at that time. And they say, The satanic panic really should be a wonder segment devoted to entirely to itself, so I'm not going to dive further into it now. But Jerry Driver's entire mindset was founded on misinformation and fear of the unknown. Unsurprisingly, the psychiatrists that assessed Damien Eccles were not under the impression that he was an evil, Satan-worshipping sadist. Rather, they believed he was just a teenager with major depressive depression disorder. A psychiatrist carefully noted that Damien indicates he is not involved with Satanism, but witchcraft. The doctor also observed that Damien smoked a pack of cigarettes a day, had a history of asthma, and wore a crude, rudimentally self-inflicted tattoo in the shape of a scientific symbol representing the female sex on his upper left arm. The doctor said that he had suicidal ideations and was with bipolar or manic depressive. So I want to take a moment to interrupt for briefly. I just took another smell of the whiskey, and literally all I can smell is roasted, candied nuts. I don't know what has changed. I don't know if me having tasted it a little bit, but that is the overwhelming smell I get now. Peanut brittle. Yes, that is it. Peanut brittle. Yep, that's what it tasted. Oh, it tasted man. peanut brittle. Um. There was, without a doubt, that Damien was weird. But weird did not necessarily mean he was a threat. And at the end of his stay in the psychiatric hospital, he was seen as not a danger to either himself or others. Pam Eccles, Damien's mother, decided that it would be best to move her children away from West Memphis, Arkansas, and they moved to Aloha, Oregon. There, Damien got a job working at a gas station that Joe Hutchinson, his biological father, managed. Despite moving over 2,000 miles away, Jerry Driver's interest in the teen did not drop away. Here is a huge insert from the book 
Devil's Knot, including transcripts from an Oregon juvenile officer. Pam Eccles and her children had barely settled into Joe Hutchinson's little apartment when Driver contacted juvenile authorities in Oregon, asking they provide courtesy supervision of Damien for as long as he remained on probation. An Oregon juvenile counselor wrote that in his referral on Damien, Driver had made the following comments. A. Damien and several others of his associates are involved in a satanic cult. B. Damien and his girlfriend were both placed in a psychiatric hospital. C. Damien threatened to kill his girlfriend's parents. D. Damien claims that he is a witch. E. Damien and his girlfriend were planning to have a child so that they could offer it as a sacrifice to Satan. And F. The authorities in Arkansas suspected that Damien's parents are involved in his satanic belief system. With what might have been some trepidation, the or- Oregon counselor paid a call on the Eccles family. He later wrote that Damien parent, Damien's parents, Pam and Joe, said that they were having no problems with the boy. Damien was not enrolled in school, the counselor noted, but was working full-time at his father's gas station, earning $5 an hour. Damien can express no hobbies or interests, interests, the counselor wrote, and when asked about what he does for fun, he says he never has fun. For the record, he noted that amid other instabilities, even Damien's name seemed to be in flux. The boy was named Michael Wayne Hutchinson at birth, but it changed his name entirely when Jack Eccles adopted him. The counselor reported, Damien indicated that he changed his name from Michael to Damien because at the time he was involved in a conversion to Catholicism and that Damien was the name of a saint he respected. At this time, Damien indicates that he is in the process of having his name legally changed from Damien back to Michael Damien Wayne Hutchinson. Damien is currently going by the name of Michael at his workplace. The juvenile counselor also checked on driver's concerns. Damien denies any involvement in satanic cult or beliefs in Satanism, he wrote. He expressed considerable displeasure with Mr. Driver in making such assertions. Damien did acknowledge a suicide pact that he and his girlfriend had made if the authorities or her parents attempted to keep them apart. However, he indicates that, following hospitalization, he no longer is interested in hurting himself or anyone else. Damien denies ever making threats of killing his girlfriend's parents. Damien acknowledges he is a witch and indicates this is his religious preference. He also distinguishes his religious beliefs from Satanism, indicating that he believes in a series of gods and goddesses and sees this as his religious preference, which should not be of concern to state authorities. Damien felt that my inquiries in the area were an intrusion into his privacy and declined to discuss the matters further. The meeting was uneventful, and after it, the officer recommended that Damien be supervised at a minimum level for the next four months until December 11, 1992, when he would turn 18. Jerry Driver was not at all happy with Oregon's conclusion and was determined to keep an eye on Damien Eccles. The Eccles family troubles did not improve with a move, and it wasn't long before Pam called the police on her son, afraid for either his or her life. Damien was involuntarily committed and placed on suicide watch. He told the doctors that he had no intention to harm anyone, but that he missed his girlfriend Deanna and his best friend Jason Baldwin back in Arkansas. While under observation, they found that Damien, 
while perhaps lacking in mathematical skills, was incredibly well-spoken and wrote beautifully, to the point that they'd called him gifted. At the end of his mandatory stay, doctors agreed that Eccles was not a danger to himself or others, but Pam and Joe did not want their son returning to live under their roof. In light of the fact that he would turn 18 in just three months, Damien's physician wrote, Plans for emancipation and return to Arkansas seem reasonable to me. The hospital notified Oregon juvenile officials. They, in turn, notified Driver that Damien would be returning by bus to Arkansas, where he planned to live again with Jack Eccles, and that he would contact Driver upon his arrival. Though the plan was approved by Oregon officials, it was not okay with Driver. Four days after Damien walked out of the Oregon hospital, Driver swore out an affidavit stating that he had violated the terms of his probation by threatening the life of his mother and father and by refusing to obey their lawful orders. At Driver's request, Prosecutor Fogelman filed a position in Chancery Court claiming that, in addition to the threats, Damien Eccles had since continued to violate the terms of his probation by moving from the home of his parents and returning to Marion, Arkansas. Nowhere did the petition to have Damien's probation revoked mention that Oregon juvenile court, uh, that Oregon juvenile authorities had been notified and approved of his move, or that driver had been formally notified as well. Upon his return to Arkansas, Damien was adjudicated a delinquent taken into custody, and sent once again to the region's juvenile detention center. He was furious. A few hours after arriving at the detention center, as he was sitting in the recreation area with several other teenagers, he confirmed Driver's darkest suspicions. As the center's director reported, one of the boys had scraped his arm a little, and it was bleeding some. Without warning, Damien grabbed the arm that was bleeding and began to suck the blood from it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the boys um, the boys all stated that he had been saying he had not taken his medication the night before and he was about to go off on them Damien was asked why he did this and he stated I don't know he told staff he had threatened to kill his father and eat him the director concluded it is our opinion that Damien needs mental health treatment The court ordered Damien to be returned to the psychiatric hospital in Little Rock, where he had been treated before. This time, Damien's hospitalization lasted for two weeks. When he was released at the end of September 1992, the hospital notified Driver that, as during Damien's other hospitalizations, his behavior while at the hospital appeared normal, though he was cautioned about his behavior and how it might appear to others. He was instructed to continue taking impromine for depression and to avail himself of follow-up care at the local mental health center. Damien returned to Marion. He still had two and a half months before he would turn 18, and until then he would remain under driver's supervision. Driver imposed three requirements. First, that Damien was to come to driver's office at least once a week. Second, that he was to observe a curfew and third, that he was to enroll in the local Votex school to obtain his GED. Damien signed a contract agreeing to all three stipulations, and by the end of December, 10 days after his 18th birthday, he'd earned his high school equivalency diploma and satisfied the other conditions as well. 
Despite Damien following these rules and medical doctors insisting that Eccles was not a danger, Jerry Driver would not be satisfied. He thought that Eccles was an outcast searching for power. Eccles kept his regular appointments with a therapist and over time grew to trust her, feeling that he was talking to her in confidence. He told her things which she recorded and shared later on, including... Quote, Damon reports being told at the hospital that he could be another Charles Manson or Ted Bundy, she wrote. Another time, describes himself as pretty much hate the human race. And on another occasion, reports being harassed by local authorities as they think I am a satanic leader. He admits to being caught with satanic items and with handwritten books about witchcraft, denies cult involvement, has been interested in witchcraft for past eight years. When Eccles visited the therapist on January 25, 1993, the session focused on death. Afterward, the therapist wrote that Damien Wait, had... wait. Sorry to interrupt. Did you mm-hmm. say January 25th, 93? Mm-hmm. That's my birthday. birthday? <laughs> that was the day I was born. Well, <laughs> when you were born, Damien Eccles was talking to uh, his therapist about death. Okay. So. I was alive. <laughs> um... Afterward, the therapist wrote that Damien had raised the subject with a poem he had written the week before. The theme of this poem centered around death and power, she wrote. Damien explained that he obtained his power by drinking the blood of others. He typically drinks the blood of a sexual partner or a ruling partner. This is achieved by biting or cutting, he states. It makes me feel like a god. He should just wait till that time of the month and just <laughs> Gross. Kill, kill two birds. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's disgusting. Oh my God. I'm not going to kink shame. Whatever. You like what you like. I don't like that. No, thank you. I'm not saying I like it, but you know, he could have killed two birds with one stone. Uh, a lot, a lot of this, um, as you'll come to see later on is, Damien wanted to be thought of as like edgy. He wanted to be. Uh, I'm struggling not to say a weirdo. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He wanted to be like that was his persona. Yeah, he, that was the image he wanted to portray to the world. Yes. So a lot of what he says um, should be taken with a grain of salt. He was just trying to be a weird kid. Um, he had a lot of mental health issues, and um, he was being bullied. And he thought the weirder he acted, the less he would be bullied. So, listen. That's the way it works. <laughs> um, at the end of the session, the therapist, encouraged, the therapist encouraged Damien to continue writing as a way of communicating his feelings. She wrote, Damien is agreeable to doing this, though he continues to question the therapist on confidentially confidentiality issues and wants to be assured that he will not be misunderstood. Damien had reason to worry because Chief Inspector Gary W. Gitchell was getting desperate and the offhand comment he'd made about the murders involving a cult early on was becoming his only option to follow. Detective Donald Bray was the first to really listen to Jerry Driver as he ranted and raved about Damien Eccles and his friends, or rather, friend. He had only one truly close friend, 16-year-old Jason Baldwin, a former neighbor. They shared many interests, including skateboarding and heavy metal. They met in study hall when Jason was in 7th grade and Damien in 8th. 
Of their friendship, Jason Baldwin said, quote, Others didn't like us. They'd been accusing me of being a Satanist since, since sixth grade. It was because I had long hair and wore concert t-shirts with bands like Metallica and Guns N' Roses and Ozzy Osbourne and U2. <laughs> and U2. <laughs> uh, also, Guns N' Roses. Yep. <laughs> that they were not Satanists at all. They weren't even heavy metal. Yeah. And Damien and I kind of dressed different. I basically wore blue jeans or bugle boy jeans with concert shirts. He liked straight, clean black clothes with nothing printed on them. But the way we dressed was one of the things people criticized. Most of the other kids, they either wore sports clothes like Tommy Hilfiger stuff, or they were country people. They wore flannel shirts and cowboy boots and belts with giant buckles. So we stood out. (laughs) Because even though Damien and I dressed different from each other, we was also different from everybody else. And the music we liked was different from whatever they were listening to, too. I introduced Damien to Metallica, and he introduced me to Pink Floyd. He, too, wasn't living his desired life, and just like my mom, he suffered from depression. I think that our friendship helped him. Damien and I also did a lot of walking. We used to walk to the local Walmart and bowling alley all the time, even when we didn't have any money. Neither of us ever had money. We definitely never had 20 bucks. We could get maybe 5 to 10 to go to the bowling alley or the skating rink where we would just enjoy being around people especially the girls. That is basically why we went to these places, was to meet new girls, shoot pool, and play video games. We would hear of concerts and things in Memphis, but we never had the money to go to them. Plus, my mom said that I wasn't old enough to go to one yet. My mom was very protective. At the time, whenever I went anywhere, I had to make sure to check in every hour. If I didn't, I would get grounded. This was also the time before major cell phones, so like this kid was like having to find fucking pay phones and like yeah call from like houses or, and shit yeah or like the restaurant's phone mm-hmm. jason baldwin was the oldest of his siblings and was very close with his mother his father had left before he met eccles and baldwin did not care about the man he was protective of his mother particularly after she attempted suicide and he found her and kept her alive while awaiting on paramedics He remained in school when Eccles dropped out and was an average student. Sorry. He was planning on studying graphic design after graduation. Jason was a believer in God, though he was pretty apathetic come high school. He firmly believed in right and wrong and moral justice. Later on, during the trial, he was overly confident he and the others would be found innocent because they were. He did not think that God would allow them to go to prison when they were innocent of the crime. Meanwhile, Detective Bray, who would later be the first to listen to Driver, was interviewing a woman named Victoria Hutchison. 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 That's what I'm going with. Uh, Detective Bray was interviewing a woman named Victoria Hutchison while the boys had been reported missing. Victoria's employers were concerned that she had stolen $200 from a customer by overcharging their credit card. Strangely, she brought her son, Aaron, to the interview. Aaron Hutchinson might sound familiar because I mentioned him in part one. He'd been the boy to report seeing Michael Moore get into a maroon car with a black man after school that day. Detective Bray began the interview but got sidetracked as Victoria explained Aaron was best friends with the missing boys, and that made Bray involved in what was currently the most notorious crime in the nation. As for the original interview, 
Bray concluded that the owners of the truck stop messed up their paperwork and there was no fault on Victoria. They rejected the de detective's conclusion and fired her, but that's neither here nor there. Jerry Driver convinced a drug officer, Lieutenant Sudbury, to come interview Eccles with him. Less than 24 hours after the bodies had been found, the two headed to the trailer park where Damien was living to commence the first interview. It was not recorded and they made no notes. Day three of the investigation, Damien would be interviewed again, this time with Jason and his girlfriend, Domini. The detectives asked the kids where they had been the night of the murders. They said that on Wednesday, May 5th, 1993, they had gone to Jason's uncle's house and Jason had cut the lawn, Griffin later wrote. Damien phoned his father to pick them up at the laundromat at N Missouri and North Worthington. They said they were picked up at 6 p.m. and Damien's father took Jason and Domini home and Damien went home. The teenagers were questioned in the yard. They were not told they were suspects. They were not read their Miranda rights or told that they could have a lawyer present. None of their parents were there. When questioned if they knew the boys, Damien said no and that anyone who'd commit such a crime was sick. Damien was asked, do you believe in God or the devil? Damien answered, according to Griffin's note, I believe in a god, but a female god. Evil force, not a devil. How does being questioned make you feel, Griffin asked. Scared, Damien replied. Would you take a polygraph? No reason I would fail. Why would your prince be in the area of or at the crime scene? They won't be, Damien said. Griffin then ran down the same list with Jason, but the younger boy was more cautious or more intimidated than Damien had been. At least he offered shorter answers. Like Damien, Jason said he did not know the victims. He agreed that the killer or killers should receive the death penalty. He said he did not know why someone would commit such a crime. To the other questions, how do you think they died and how do you think the killer felt, Jason answered curtly, I don't know. Jason said he did believe in God. He said that killing or watching someone die would make him feel disgusted, and he told Griffin that being questioned made him feel like a suspect. The detective was nearing the end of his list when Baldwin's mother, Gail Grinnell, drove up and flew out of the car in a fury. As Durham wrote in his notes, she was very upset and accused us of picking on her son and said she did not want us talking to him. He added, I attempted to reason with her, but to no avail. We then left. The following Monday, May 10th, Damien Eccles was asked to come to the police station for another interview. He complied and again did not have parents or lawyer present. Here are notes from said interview. Damien stated that the person who did the crime was sick or that the act was a part of a thrill kill. Damien stated that the penis is a strong symbol of power. Damien stated that the killer was not worried about the boys screaming due to their being in the woods. He also stated the killer wanted to hear the screaming. Damien thinks, thinks that the killer thinks it's funny because he hasn't been caught and doesn't really care if he is caught. Damien stated that there would probably be stones, candles, a knife, and or crystals in the area where the bodies were found. Damien states that the killer is probably someone local and that he won't run. Damien likes to read books by author Anton LaVey, Satanist, also by Stephen King. Damien feels that sex is boring. Damien has evil across his left, knuckle, left knuckles, just like his best friend Jason Baldwin. 
Damien considers himself to be very intelligent. Damien wants to be a writer of scary books or poems. On May 13th, one week after the murders, Detective Bray and Mary, Marion interviewed Vicki Hutchinson again. As before, Hutchinson brought her son Aaron with her. Since Bray had already concluded that the murders in West Memphis were probably cult-related, he asked her if she knew anything about an occult or devil worshippers. Hutchinson said she did not, but a few days later she called Bray to report that kids in the neighborhood knew something about a local cult. She said that she was going to play detective and try to find out more. Bray did not object. Hutchinson's personal investigation began with Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., a scrappy 17-year-old neighbor who frequently babysat for her children. Jesse lived near Hutchinson in a Marion trailer park. Hutchinson never explained how her interest came to focus on Jesse, but it may have been no coincidence that his name was on a list of suspects that Driver had given to, had given to Bray. Miss Kelly's father, an automobile mechanic, shared the same name as, as his son. He was known around Marion as Big Jesse, primarily for his strength, because, because he was barely of average height. Jesse Jr., or literal Jesse as he was called, stood maybe an inch over five feet tall. Perhaps to compensate for his size, he wore his hair spiked at the top of his head, adding another two inches. Jason Baldwin had known Jesse since the two were in elementary school. He was all right, Jason would later recall. He just didn't learn quick, and he didn't have much common sense either. He could be funny, but maybe we were all laughing more at him than with him. Jesse Miss Kelly reportedly had an IQ of 72, which is borderline intellectual functioning. He was tiny and scrappy, known as a fighter. He said that he picked fights so that he wouldn't get bullied. There was a number of times the doctors recommended that Jesse live in a facility or hospital that could better care for him, but always the idea was rejected. By 16, he was barely at a fourth grade skill level and was considered dangerous, as he'd severely cut himself by punching through windows, hit a girl in the head, and stabbed a boy with a pencil, all of this by the time he was 11. His last psychological evaluation came just before he dropped out of school at 16 because he, quote, just didn't care no more. The test showed that Jesse had deficits in general information, abstract and concrete reasoning, numerical reasoning, language development, word knowledge, verbal comprehension, and spatial visual visualization. Vicki Hutchinson decided to help the investigation by getting close to Jesse and coaxing him into telling her all of the secrets about Damien and Jason. The biggest problem with this, however, is that he didn't hang out with the two boys. When Hutchinson asked Jesse if he knew of a kid named Damien Eccles, Jesse said yes, but that I didn't know him well. She asked me, was he into witchcraft? Jesse would let her... Jesus, mother of God, talk so I can breathe. Talking? So, I am... I feel like I'm seeing... You know how TV shows sometimes do like an episode and then the next episode has nothing to do with it and then they tie together in the third episode? I feel like that's what where we're at today. Yes. I feel like that's what we're doing. That's literally, I'm sorry, okay. it is kind of what we're doing, yes. I'm talking, last week was about the crime, this week is about 
The suspects. The suspects next week. We're going to put them together. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, I spoiled what next week's topic's going to be. I'm pretty sure most people could guess. <laughs> um, she asked me, was he into witchcraft? Jesse would later recall. I told her I didn't really know. I just knowed he was a weird person. Next, Hutchinson asked Jesse about Jason Baldwin, another of the boys who was on driver's list. Yeah, Jesse told her. I've known Jason since sixth grade. He's a nice person. Me and him, we've always gotten along. Vicky eventually got to the point where she asked Jesse that where she told Jesse that she had the hots for Damien, and Jesse promised that he'd introduce the two. Hutchinson was 32 at this time and had two children. The fact that Jesse wasn't close to J- Jason or Damien didn't thwart either her request or Jesse's desire to assist his friend. Quote, Jesse did as he was asked. The next time Jason and Damien were in the neighborhood, Jesse brought them to the Hutchinson house, made the introductions, and left. He walked to his own trailer, he said, and within 15 minutes saw Damien's mother's car um, arrive to pick up the two boys. Jesse assumed that Damien had called for his mother to come since it was well known that Damien did not drive. As far as Jesse knew, that was the only contact Vicki Hutchinson ever had with Damien and Jason. Vicki Hutchinson tells a different story. She informed the detectives that after meeting an after that meeting, an eight-day whirlwind romance took off. She firmly declared from the beginning that no, nothing sexual took place, but that Damien was passionately in love, and everything on her part was a calculated act. At this point, I also want to mention that Damien had a girlfriend, Domini. Um, I thought the other... Deanna, the teenagers. He's dating a new one now. No, yeah, I thought that was the other kid that had that was dating Domini. No. Um, oh. Damien... Yes, Damien was dating Domini. Okay. Jason was single. Okay. As far as I know. Oh, I get it. I misunderstood. You said they questioned Jason and his girlfriend earlier. Yes, they questioned so they, Jason, Jason and... And Damien's, Damien's girlfriend. girlfriend. Sorry, okay. that yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. I could see how that was yeah, confusing. Yeah, okay. She said to Jerry D- Driver, "Quote, he's not real, real talkative. You kind of have to pull things out of him." But he kept telling me about the boys' murders and how he had been. He never said questioned. He always said that I was accused for eight hours. I was accused of killing those three little boys. And I said. You know, I just acted like it was no big deal. I said, well, you know, why would they pick you in West Memphis? You know, there are bukus of people. Why would they just pick you out? And he just looked at me, I mean, real weird, and said, because I'm evil. Hutchinson told Eccles that she wanted to learn more about Satanism, and he gladly obliged, deciding to take her to an espit, or a gathering of witches. On the night of Wednesday, May 19th, two weeks after the night the children disappeared, Damien picked her up at her house in a red Ford Escort. Beyond the description of the car, her details of the experience were thin. Jesse was in the car, she said. Damien drove them to a field north of Marion. They'd approached it by dirt road. She said she'd heard water running in the distance. When she climbed out of the car, she saw about ten young people, with faces and arms painted black, taking off their clothes and touching each other. Offended, she asked Damien to take her home, and he agreed. Damien drove the car, leaving Jesse behind at the orgy. 
Hutchinson said that she could not identify anyone she'd seen at the ESPIT because of the paint on their faces. She also said that they referred to each other by nicknames such as Lucifer and Spider, so she couldn't even give police the names of anyone there. Though Hutchinson did not mention it, there was no moon that night. Police apparently did not ask how the scene was lighted, or how she'd been able to see what little she described. Nor did police question her claim that Damien had driven a car, despite their awareness that he did not have a license and had never been known to drive, and that no one in his family owned a red Ford Escort. This was all total bullshit. I'm sure that's shocking to learn, because Vicki Hutchinson's story was so convincing. But the investigators took her word as gold. They asked that they bug her house with a tape recorder. She agreed, and after it was installed, invited Damien over. Vicky and the police claimed that they had a recording, but it was so distorted you couldn't hear Damien or discern his voice. And shockingly, the tape disappeared. When police took Jesse Miss Kelly in for questioning, he was flabbergasted as to why Vicky said such a thing about going to an orgy. Everyone knew Damien didn't drive. When investigators first brought Jesse into the station, he wasn't sure what they wanted from him. The detective told me he couldn't ask me no questions without my dad signing papers. I told him my dad wouldn't have a problem with that, so we left the police station to go where my dad was at. While we was on the way there, he told me if I knew anything, that there was a $35,000 reward, and if I could help them out, we'd get the money. We met my dad down on the service road. I talked to my dad about it. He said if I knew anything, to tell the police... And then my dad could buy him a new truck. We went back to the police station. I just told them what I knew about the kids I'd seen on the side of the service road and what my friend told me. That's all I knew. That's when they gave me the polygraph. Mike Allen, Gary Gitchell, and Bryn Ridge, they were in another room. Bill Durham asked me some questions and I answered him. He asked me, did I know who killed him? I told him no. He asked me, would I tell him the truth? I told him yes. He asked me, did I ever do drugs? I told him no. He asked me three times over and over, and then when I was through, he told me I was lying. I told him, okay, I've done drugs before. He said, I know because I've seen you sell them. And that's when I got real mad because I told him I never have sold drugs. I've used them, but I ain't never sold them. That's when he told me I was lying. He told me that my brain was telling him so. I didn't know what was going on, Jesse said. Because how can my brain be telling him that I was sitting there lying? It got me confused. Then he stood up and he was talking. He kind of spit on me. And I didn't know if it was on purpose or not, because he was yelling when he did it. I drew back. I was going to hit him. Then Mike Allen came in and grabbed me. Then Gitchell came and got me and took me to another room. That's when, they, when he started talking to me. The whole time, the same questions they'd already asked me. They kept asking over and over again. When Gitchell asked me what the boys looked like, I told him the stuff I'd heard. I kept telling Gary Gitchell I wanted to go home. He said I could go home in a minute, and then kept asking me the same questions over and over again. From that point, it just got rougher on down. They asked me how did I know so much about the murder if I didn't do it. I kept telling them I didn't know about who did it. I just knew of it, what my friend told me and they kept hollering at me. Gary Gitchell and Bryn Ridge both, they kept saying they knew I had something to do with it because other people done told them. After I told them what the boys were wearing, Gary Gitchell told me, was any of them tied up? 
That's when I went along with him. I repeated what he told me. I said, yes, they was tied up. He asked, what was they tied up with? I told him a rope. He got mad. He told me, God damn it, Jesse, don't mess with me. He said, no, they was tied up with shoestrings. I had to go all through the story again until it got, until I got it right. They hollered at me until I got it right. So whatever he was telling me, I started telling him back because I figured something was wrong because if I had killed him, I'd have known how I'd done it. Remember before last week when I told you to remember the shoestrings that all three boys have been tied with shoelaces? This is why. What was your sign? You said last week again. No, two weeks ago. Sorry. <laughs> Y'all remember last episode, episode 86, when I said remember the shoestrings? Yes. Yes. Um, all three boys have been tied with shoelaces. This is why. The cops berated, threatened, and coerced Jesse into making a false confession. You can find sound files of the interview online, the parts that the mistape that the tape wasn't mysteriously paused for while they coached him what to say, and it's very upsetting. Jesse is very clearly confused and upset. He's desperately trying to let them let him go home. Remember, he's intellectually disabled. The police were basically screaming at a child. For 34 minutes, while tape fed through the recorder, Jesse answered questions for Gitchell, Ridge, and Allen. Most of his answers were vague, many were contradictory, and almost all began with a prompt by one of the detectives. Okay, Jesse, Ridge said, let's get straight to that date, May 5th, 1993, Wednesday, early in the morning. You receive a phone call, is that correct? Yes, I did. And who made that phone call? Jason Baldwin. All right, what occurred? What did he talk about? He called me and asked me if I could go to West Memphis with him. I told him no, I had to go to work and stuff. He told me that he had to go to West Memphis, so him and Damien went, and then I went with them. All right, when did you go with them? That morning. Jesse said that he, Damien, and Jason walked the three or four miles from Marion to West Memphis and into the Robin Hood Woods. Ridge asked what happened there, and Jesse answered, When I was there, I saw Damien hit one of the boys real bad, and then he started screwing them and stuff. Ridge showed him a newspaper clicking clipping of the three victims and asked which boy Damien had attacked. Jesse pointed to one of the pictures and said, Michael Moore. But the boy Jesse pointed to was not Michael Moore. Gitchell, pointing to one of the photos, interjected, This boy right here? When Jesse answered, Yeah, Gitchell said, All right, that's the buyer's boy. That's who you're pointing at. Jesse said that it was. Ridge continued, Okay, so you saw Damien strike Chris Byers in the head. Jesse had said he'd not seen Damien strike Chris in the head. Nonetheless, he'd answered, right. What'd he hit him with? He hit him with his fist and bruised him up real bad, and then Jason turned around and hit Stevie Branch and started doing the same thing. Then the other one took off. Michael Moore took off running, so I chased him and grabbed hold of him until they got there, and then I left. Clearly, this is riddled with problems. A truly serious one is the timing. Jesse said all of this took place in the morning, but the boys were 100% in school until 2.45 p.m. Nevertheless, the interrogation continued. Which way does he go? Ridge asked. I mean, does he go back toward where the houses are? 
Is he going to the Blue Beacon? Is he going towards the fields? Where he run into? Towards the houses. Toward the houses? <laughs> where them pipes, is that... Blah, where the pipe that is goes across the yards? Yes, he run out there and I caught him and I brought him back and I took off. It happened repeatedly. Jesse saying he'd left the scene without w- witnessing the murders. Ridge tried again. Okay, he prompted. And when you came back a little later, now all three boys are tied. Jesse had said nothing about returning to the scene, but he answered, yes. Ridge said, is that right? Jesse, yes. And I took off and run home. All right. Have they got their clothes on when you saw them tied? No, they had them off. They had already gotten them off. When he first hit the boy, when Damien first hit the first boy, did they have their clothes on then? Yes. All right, when did they take the clothes off? Right after they beat up three... Blah, blah, blah. Right after they beat up all three of them. Beat them up real bad. Beat them up real bad. And then they took their clothes off. Yes. And then they tied them. Uh, then they tied them up. Tied the hands up. They started screwing them and stuff. Cutting them and stuff. I, I saw it, turned around and looked... And then I took off running. I went home. They called me and asked me how come I didn't stay. I told them I just couldn't. Couldn't stay? I just couldn't stand it to see what they were doing to them. Okay. Now, when this is going on, when this has taken place, you saw somebody with a knife. Who had a knife? I had a knife. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That's all right. Jason, Jesse said, In answers to half a dozen more questions, Jesse said he saw Jason cut one of the boys in the face and another boy at the bottom in what Gitchell established was his groin area. Then Ridge asked, in a rare acknowledgement of Jesse's limitations, do you know what a penis is? Yeah, Jesse answered. That's where he was cut. The officers established that the boy in question was the buyer's boy again. When Jesse confirmed, that's the one I seen them cutting on. Ridge gasped again. All right, do you know what a penis is? Again, Jesse said yes, and that was where he'd seen Jason cutting. Right there, real close to his penis and stuff. And I saw some blood, and that's when I took off. The officers asked a few questions about where Jesse was standing as, his, as this bloody scene unfolded. He told them that he was on one of the banks overlooking the drainage ditch. I was looking down, and after I'd seen all that, I took off. Ridge acknowledged Jesse's claim to have left the scene. All right, he said. You went home. And about what time was it this all took place? I'm not saying when they called you. I'm saying what time was it when you actually were there in the park? About 12, Jesse said. About noon? Yes. But the police knew that that was no good. So Ridge's next question was, Okay, was it after school had let out? I didn't go to school. These little boys, they skip school. Every detective in the room knew, even if Jesse did not, that that statement was absurd. But the detectives persisted, and Jesse said it again. The boys had skipped school. In this version, he had met Jason and Damien in the woods early in the morning, about 9 a.m., and the victims, who had skipped school, had been murdered by noon. Exasperated, Ridge asked Jesse if he wore a watch. When Jesse said that it was at home, Ridd suggested, So your time period may not be exactly right, is what you're saying. Right, Jesse answered. As the interview progressed, Jesse's version of events grew more convoluted. 
At one point, he told the detectives that after all this stuff happened, that night they done it, I went home about noon, then they called me at 9 o'clock that night. He said Jason placed the call, but that Damien was at Jason's house with him at the time. They asked me how come I left so early and stuff, and I told him I couldn't stay there and watch that stuff no more. And Damien was hollering in the background saying, we done it, we done it. What are we going to do if somebody saw us? What are we going to do? But now, Gitchell was growing impatient. He told Jesse, I've got a feeling here you're not quite telling me everything. Now, you know that we're recording everything, so this is very, very important to tell us the entire truth. If you were there the whole time, then tell us that you were there the whole time. Don't leave anything out. This is very, very important. Now, just tell us the truth. Jesse responded, I was there until, I, until they tied him up, and that's when I left. After they had tied them up, I left. But you saw them cutting on the boys? I saw them cutting on them. So what else is there after that? They laid the knife down beside them. I saw them time it up, and that's when I left. Were the boys conscious, or were they? They were unconscious then. Unconscious. And after I left, they done more. They done more? They started screwing them again. This was another clear problem, because the boys had not actually been sexually assaulted. But let's move on with the interview. Okay, Rich said. Let me ask you something. No, this is real serious, and I want you to be real truthful. I want you to think about it before you answer. Don't just say yes or no real quick. I want you to think about it. Did you actually hit any of these boys? No. Now tell us the truth. No. Did you actually rape any of these boys? No. Did you actually kill any of these boys? No. Did you see any of the boys actually killed? Yes. Okay, which one did you see killed? That one right there. Now you're pointing to the buyer's boy again. Yes. How was he actually killed? He choked him real, real bad and all. The police had not seen, and the metal ex examiner had not mentioned any indication that the boys had been choked, much less that that's how they died. But Ridge carried on. Choking him? Okay. What was he choking him with? His hands, like a stick, he had a big old stick, kind of holding it over his neck. Okay, so he was choking him to the point where he actually went unconscious, so that at that point you felt like he was dead. Yeah. Christopher Byers' neck, however, was the one part of his body that didn't have any clear signs of trauma. He definitely had not been choked. Ridge and Gitchell did not press the point. They had an eyewitness to the murders. They opted not to be picky but there was still the nagging problem of Jesse's time to be addressed. Ridge approached it once again. Okay, they killed the boys, he said. Jesse had not said he had seen the other two boys killed, but Ridge glossed over that point. He continued, they killed the boys, you decided to go, you went home. How long after you got home before you received the phone call? 30 minutes or an hour? In an interview full of misrepresentations of what Jesse had said, this was one of the greatest. Jesse had repeatedly stated that he arrived at the woods about 9 a.m. and that he had left there about noon. He said the phone call from Jason had come about 9 o'clock that night. Yet now, Ridge was giving him a choice. How long after he'd left the woods had that phone call from Jason come? 30 minutes or an hour? Jesse was silent for a moment. Then he said, an hour. The police decided to end the interview there. Ridge noted the time, 3.18 p.m., and the tape recorder was turned off. By now, Jesse had been at the police station almost six hours. He had been questioned, 
polygraphed, questioned, and then questioned again. Of all that questioning, only the past 34 minutes had been recorded. The actual statement is hard to listen to, and you can hear the desperation in Jesse's voice. But if you're curious, you can find it with a quick Google search. And they weren't ready to let Miss Kelly go yet. They took a 20-minute break with the camera and the recorders off. And then they began to interrogate Jesse again with them on. Gitchell says, Jesse, when you three were in the woods and the little boys come up, what time was it? I would say it was about five or so. Five or six. Did you have your watch on at the time? Jesse shakes his head no. All right, you told me earlier around seven or eight. What time was it? It was seven or eight. Are you... It was starting to get dark. Oh, well, that clears that up. That clears that up indeed. Funny how the time drastically changed from the first recorded interview to just 27 minutes later, almost as if he'd maybe been coerced and coached into changing his story. Curious. Gitchell turns to another of the problems with the earlier confession, the part in which Jesse had said the boys had been tied with ropes. The correct answer would have been shoestrings, some white, others black, that had been removed from the children's own shoes. All right, who tied the boys up? Damien. Did Damien just tie them all up, or did anyone help Damien? Jason, Jason helped him. Okay, and what did they use to tie him up? A rope. Okay, what color was the rope? Brown. God damn it, Jesse and Miss Kelly. They told you it was shoelaces. God, get their story straight so they don't have to do any real work. Years later, Jesse would recall that his questioning by police had seemed to him like a game. He said that when the detectives refused to accept his answers to their questions, he didn't know what to do. Then he figured out that they were giving him clues, and then when he provided answers that confirmed the clues, things went better for him. Though the questioning had seemed serious, it has also struck him as silly. I figured they knew what was lying from the get-go, he said. Because the police, they knew me. They knew me for a long time. They knew I wasn't that type of person to go killing little kids. I figured they knew I was lying because they was lying too. When the detectives were through with their questions, they took Jesse into a holding cell. Later, he recalled, After they turned the tape recorder off, I was too tired to talk. I just wanted to lie down. I figured I was just supposed to wait there until my dad come to get me. No one had explained to Jesse that he had implicated himself in the triple murder by saying he'd caught and held one of the boys or that he was about to be arrested. I f- figured they knew I needed a ride home, he said. But but my dad never did show up. Fucking heartbreaking. Of course, with Jess- Jesse's testimony, they now had probable cause to get a restaurant warrants for Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin, which is exactly what they did. As soon as all three were in holding, the officers approached the media and declared, the killers have been caught. It was the morning of June 4th, 1993. And friends, this is where I'll leave you this week. We've got one more part to finish up the West Memphis Three, and I hope you tune in next week for the conclusion. So, I've got to say, um, I am one of the most distrustful people on this planet. I have, most people default to somebody 
default to truth with somebody. So, for instance, if you know you go to the doctor and the doctor says, "Oh, you should take these pills," most people say, "Okay, that'll help me get better," and I immediately go, "What the fuck are these <laughs> pills going to do to me?" I am that person. I I default to a lie. I don't default to truth. So, but immediately when I hear these stories, I default to both parties are lying. I don't. I can see where the cops would be crooked, but I can also see where this kid could be one hundred percent telling the truth, and they could actually have done it. So, I I guess at the end of the day, it's like it's one of those like I don't trust either party. Okay, they're all guilty in my book. I'm curious, though, how, with all the contradicting and stuff he did, how could you still, like... Because, I mean, number one, when something intense is happening, you don't remember it. When your adrenaline's flowing like that, you don't remember every detail. Number two, I would definitely be interested in hearing the tape instead of just... Listening to me. Listening to to a transcript of it. Um, it just, it like, I can see how people would get shit mixed up. Like, I, I mean, there have been, there are memories I have in my head, you know, where I, I think it happened one way, and then I'll talk about it, I'll tell a story with somebody else, and they'll go, oh, no, you've got these four details wrong. It happened at this time, and we were we were at this place, you know, I might say, hey, yeah, this happened in the Walmart parking lot. And they're like, no, no, this happened at your house. And then we went to Walmart, you know? So I, if that happens to me, it could happen to Forrest Gump over here. <laughs> um, so I don't trust any of them. I don't think, I can see how the cops would be bad cops, but I don't think that I'm the person, I don't think all cops are evil. I don't think most cops are evil. I don't think they're out just to get a name. So I don't know. I don't trust either side. I can see both possibilities being right. I can see both possibilities being wrong. All right. I, you were the first person I've ever like heard say that they could see Jesse being like. I can 100% see Forrest Gump being brainwashed into saying whatever. I can also see him covering his ass later saying, well, I was just, they were brainwashing me. Somebody got into his head years later and brainwashed him to say that. Wow. You know, I can also see where he's like, yeah, it was, it was like nine in the morning or, or shit. Was it like, you know, maybe hell, did we smoke weed out there and time passed? And you know, next thing I know it was like four in the afternoon. You just, I can see shit like that happening. It happens to me. All Which right. is why I would never want to find myself in a situation like that. All right. I don't know. I'm just, like I said, I'm that person that nine out of ten people default to truth and would default <laughs> to, yeah, those cops are crooked. And I'm just like, I don't know if they're crooked or not. I don't trust them, but I don't trust the witness either. All right. Well, might be covering his ass, so. I don't know. Right. Anyway. I mean, and in... Interesting take. Um, I'm curious. Um, uh, and and let me let me. We're running long here, so I'm gonna, uh, sorry. I'm going to wrap it up with this. Um, I am still very interested in 
the detail of a man went into uh, what, what restaurant was it? Into the bathroom into covered the in blood. Bathroom yes. covered in blood. I am interested in that detail a lot more than I am Forrest Gump here. Yeah. So I hope that comes into play next week. I doubt it does by your face, but <laughs> that interests me a whole hell of a lot more than old, like I said, Forrest Gump over here. All right. Um, so with that, guys, we're going to move on. Trivia with Tyler. All right. So the first ever nuclear reactor meltdown you want to take a guess on where this happened oh i bet i even said it during the true noble episodes oh well i can't i don't know no the first one happened on december 12th 1952 in ottawa canada and a disaster was averted because a team led by future u.s president jimmy carter the peanut man uh, lowered themselves into the damaged reactor to fix it. So, wow. interesting. It happened right here in good old North America. So, I believe I'd mentioned something about that in the True Noble episode, but that's yeah. been who knew. Uh, who knew so Jimmy Carter ago. was new for something other than being the president and the peanut farmer, and still like building houses for the homeless and shit. Oh yeah, that's right. He's like 101 still building houses. Yeah, he's like still volunteering and stuff and he's like old as dirt. I wouldn't have known that about him though. I remember it when you said it and I remember hearing it somewhere. But the only thing I know him for, he was the president and he was peanut man. (laughs) So anyway. Final thoughts. All right. Well, um, I didn't get to enjoy this a whole hell of a lot as I was talking, especially because that was 17 pages of notes. Oof. So, and a lot of that was the transcript going back and forth. So it wasn't like, I don't know what it would have been if I'd like put it all together, but how late are we running? Uh, We're sitting at about uh, an hour and 40 minutes almost. I didn't want to go that long today. Sorry. Oh, well, it is what it is. Hopefully next week isn't that long. Um, I just add a couple of drops of water to mine. I saw saw you add water yeah. to yours already. So I'm... it um, it stayed very very similar. Brought a little sweetness out on the back end and took the burn down. Megan uh, is making a face over there. It made it uh, it it brought some sweetness out, but it also made it a little bit more bitter too. Um. So I guess the sweetness was more on the mid and the bitter was kind of on the back end. Maybe that was that chewed tobacco. Um or wet tobacco. Wet tobacco. Yeah. Um I it kind of hurt my throat. Not in like a burn, but in just like an uncomfortable way, kind of like when you um eat something really really sour, like if I was like to bite in a lemon and kind of like got that feeling in my throat there for a second and I don't know why um i'm gonna have to try it again and see if that happens again um with the water added yeah I, the um, second time through i i didn't get any real bitterness like that i just got a little more sweet less burn still cinnamony but 
much, much more mild. Much milder. The second time I didn't get that weird sour, I think I just must have like... Yeah, it must have been like the... Because I hadn't drank in a while either. I must have like started to swallow and it was about to go down the wrong pipe and my brain was like, abort, abort, abort. And that's what happened. Uh, one thing to note, the finish is long on this. Um, For sure. We didn't, we didn't mention that at the beginning. But yeah, I'm... Uh... So... I don't know how obvious it was, and I'm praying it wasn't obvious. Um, but the entire time I was doing the wonder segment, I was like burping up peanuts. I had no idea. So no. you're good. Oh, thank God. Um, I meant to change that. That yeah, that like whole time I was like, oh, here comes another peanut burp. Well, that's There's good. Another that, one. <laughs> that's good that the trivia t- trivia with Tyler was about the peanut man. Oh uh, yeah, it so. fit in with this whiskey. Um, well, I am. I guess I'll go ahead and. Just flat out say it. I thought it was pretty darn good. Um, I don't know, you know, for 90 bucks, that's a lot better than paying $170 for some things. Um, but you get that cool ass eh, box. It ain't, it ain't $90 worth. I, there are also whiskeys that are cheaper that you I like, like more just as good or just as much. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to go with a solid seven and a half. All right. That's a pretty good number. Um, this is the first, I think in my head, this is the first really like strong barrel proof whiskey that I've really enjoyed. I don't think we've done many barrel proofs. I think the strongest whiskey we, uh, I think we did one or two. Uh, well, no, well, friend John sent us four barrel yeah. proof. Um, and then we did the, the old Forester 1920, which is like one, one eighteen or one fifteen or something like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know, for as strong as it, I thought I would really hate it with as strong as it is. Cause I'm a wimp. Um, but I actually really liked it. It isn't a hundred dollars good, but I'd pay 75 for yeah. it. I would definitely pay yeah. 75, especially if I got that cool little box it comes in i i I think Um, the hundred dollar or the not hundred dollars but the ninety dollars the extra fifteen dollars you throw in because they only release it quarterly and it's a limited it's allocated basically okay like thinking thinking in those terms like all right this is probably worth worth it it's not going to be a daily drinker because of the price point but it is going to be something that occasionally i'm like you know today's a booker day Yeah, i'm feeling bookers today yeah um so I think I'm gonna do an eight. I think this is a this is a good solid eight. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Maybe you heard it here second. I don't know. You might have listened to another podcast that reviewed Booker's. Actually, I think we're the only whiskey review podcast. I think we might be. So tell your friends. Yeah, if you like whiskey, if Absolutely. they like whiskey, like we are the only podcast that does whiskey reviews. And um, we we forgot to mention this earlier. Oh shit. Uh, it's my fault. Um, so we've mentioned it. Uh, we are partners with BarkBox. You can go check out whiskeyandwonder.com slash sponsors. Uh, we're also partners with Flaviar. You can click on the links over there and you'll, uh, be redirected to a page that, um, basically you, with BarkBox, you get a free extra month when you subscribe. Everybody's got a dog. You know, uh, Navy was trying to get my water earlier. <laughs> Bo's outside because they'll make so much noise if we let them in here together. Yeah. Um, but we've we've 
both use BarkBox and love it. It comes with some toys, comes with some some healthy treats for them, uh, and they also have super chewer. Yes, yeah, super and chewer and, and a dental package yep. as well that you can sign up for. Um, so those are always, you know, everybody loves their dog. You want to spoil spoil your dogs, mm-hmm. so BarkBox is a great way of doing that. You can. Uh, Help the podcast out by going to BarkBox.com slash Whiskey and Wonder, and that is Whiskey with an E, and signing up for a subscription. They do one, six, or 12-month subscriptions. Um, and you can also go to WhiskeyandWonder.com slash sponsors. Mm-hmm. And we also are sponsored by, are sponsored by uh, partners with Flaviar. Uh, we don't have a cool code with them yet, um, and they have essentially, you if you're a longtime listener, we had some Flaviar memberships very early on. Uh, until they stopped shipping to our state. Unfortunately, they changed the laws, and, you know, we're hoping that... that it changes. We're, we're talking to our Congress people about changing that back. We're, we're lobbying <laughs> to make that, reverse that decision. Um, but anyway, yeah, so Flaviar is awesome. You can subscribe, and you there are various levels. Some you can get just whiskey sent to your your home or wherever you would like others you can have or whatever if you're in the you know a state that allows that yeah um others you can subscribe for a essentially they give you three tasters which which they're like little vials of whiskey and you can choose between you know about 10 10 to 12 excuse me i think it's quarterly each quarter mm-hmm. you can choose about 10 to 12 uh, different ones uh like we've done the um uh, where we got three Japanese whiskeys. We did whiskeys around the world. Uh, we did um, like the the whiskey intro pack, I think. And so, you know, there's all sorts of different varieties you could do of those. And then with that subscription, you also get a full 750 mil bottle as Every well. Every quarter as well. Yep. So, and you get to choose that. So... If you want to uh, support the podcast, we get a little kickback from those mm-hmm. when you sign up through our links. So for Flaviar, you can head over to whiskeyandwonder.com slash sponsors to do that. And you can um, also find the link to BarkBox there um, yeah, the link, and any other of our partnerships. Yeah, we have a couple others we're still working on getting uh, getting into the show. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the time being, yeah, check those out. We're working on getting... You know, how we have the BarkBox.com slash Whiskey and Wonder. We're working on getting something like that with Flaviar yep. and our other partners as well. So hopefully it'll be easy on you guys. Hopefully we'll have some promo codes here shortly and mm-hmm. we can go from there. But uh, on that note, guys. All right. I think uh, we are bleeding over in time, so I apologize for that. Um, we have one more week of the West Memphis 3. I'm going to f- cram the rest of it into just one more Wonder segment if it kills me. Um, and I hope you guys have been enjoying the true crime because, uh, Tyler gave me the true crime green light and I jumped into one of the longest true crime things I possibly could. So, you know, (laughs) every once in a while, I don't mind it. So, all right. Well, I won't do another true crime for a hot minute. Uh, That's fine. I don't, you know, you do you, you pick whatever you want to pick. Yeah. So, all right, guys, thank you so much to everyone who listens, follows, sponsors, likes, reviews, subscribes gives us money, is a Patreon, all of your wonderfulness. We love you. We thank you. You're the reason why this happens. Um, And we hope you keep on listening, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you guys so much. Don't drink and drive. Cheers.
a knife.